Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Well, it's great to be with you today. We're continuing our series, Powerful Me, God's Picture of God, Realizing God's Picture of You. And a couple weeks ago when we introduced this series, we challenged the way our culture thinks about good self-esteem, and we actually also challenged the way all too many people in the church think negatively about self-esteem. And, uh, and we talked about it from the pers- this perspective. We talked about from the way that most of pop psychology and our world creates a self-esteem, it ends up being a house of cards for us. We have this uh, success built upon success way in which the world tells you to focus on little achievements, get good successes, build on those, and only focus on your successes. The problem is that leads us to this place of constant performance because we can't live on our laurels. I mean, we finish something and we have to do something more. We continually have to do better, do more, and continue to perform. Or the world just simply says we solve our self-esteem issue by telling yourself you're a good person. But the reality is you and I know our own thoughts better than anybody else. We know the hatred we've felt towards others. We know the awful, horrible thoughts that have gone through our minds. We know the behaviors that we've done that have hurt others, that have hurt ourselves, that have betrayed our conscience and betrayed others. And how can you build self-esteem on something like that? We talked about how the fact that the Bible actually says that self-esteem is something that is based upon worship and right relationship with God. Now, the people who actually argue against self-esteem from the Bible do so because they misunderstand the definition. The definition of self-esteem is simply how do we view ourselves? How do you look at yourself? There's nothing biblical or unbiblical about that definition and that concept. All of us have a way we view ourselves. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it healthy? Is it a house of cards or is it something stable? Well, that's a whole other question. But we all have a way that we view ourselves. And the Bible says that the way to find a self-esteem that lasts is in Jesus to see God the way he sees us. We talked about that last week as we began to, or two weeks ago as we began to dive into Ephesians. This one long bursting sentence of worship by Paul that is just overflowing with so much. We're going to spend some more time on that. But we left you last time with a meditation exercise that you could take home to think about what would your life today be like? How would it be different if you really believe that because of Christ in your life, you have absolutely every spiritual blessing in the entire universe. How does that change the way you feel? How does that change the way you approach the problems that you face every day? What does that say about you? We also talked about the fact that that biblically, our self-esteem doesn't start and end with sin. It actually starts and ends with creation and God creating us in His very image. Powerful. We're created in the image of the most powerful being in all of the universe. Why should we not have a confident, powerful sense of who we are and a beautiful sense of who we are? And it ends in redemption. The fact that God considered it worth it. He considered you worth it to send Jesus to pay the price. Now, 
those who argue against this view that we're talking about even in the church and the self-esteem idea would say, well, God only did that because of his character. He didn't do it because of you, right? That, that's, well, certainly God did it because of his character. There's no doubt about that, right? But character is not just about me. Character is about my relationships as well. If I choose, because I choose to stay faithful to my wife, even though there are difficult, painful times, if I make that choice simply because of my character in a selfish sense, my reputation or my word that I gave, that's rather narcissistic, don't you think? And to say that God only considers us worth it because of his character and it really has nothing to do with us paints God as a narcissist. But I stay faithful to my wife because I love her, because I see how beautiful she is. I see the potential that's unreached. And my word of commitment is to stay in that relationship because of my character, but because I believe in her. And God looks at you, thinks the best of you, and shouldn't he? He's the one who created you. He thinks amazingly about you. And that's the issue that we've been dealing with in this self-esteem. Today we're going to continue um, this series on Powerful Me, and we're going to continue to look at this one long bursting sentence of worship, and we're going to focus on one part of it today that deals with the age-old question that is really at the center of how strong and stable our self-esteem can be. And it's this issue that's often referred to as predestination. Is everything planned or by choice? Is it free will or is it determinism? Is it choice or fate? Is it, is it am I responsible for everything or is this just my lot in life? Are we ultimately responsible for everything in our life or does God have this plan that we can't do anything about? Now, we're actually going to use our clickers right now and we're going to find out about a little bit about how we think about this topic ourselves. So grab them. Our first question is going to be more of a Likert scale. So free will or predestination, where do you fit on this continuum? Do you, are you strongly free will? Are you somewhat free will, neutral, somewhat predestination, strongly predestination? Let's go ahead and click. How are we doing, Jenny? Look like we got everybody's responses. Okay, so we lean pretty heavily towards the free will and somewhat free will. Okay, let's get a little bit more specific. Uh, this next question, I have prayed for my sports team to win a game. True or false? Did you guys see the report out this last week by the Public Religion Research Institute? It was featured in the news. It said that 55% of football fans believe that God, that supernatural forces have something to do with the win or loss of their team. And that 26% of everybody who's a football fan prays that their team will win. Well, we're right in there, aren't we? <laughs> okay, let's give it, let's give him a little more specific. I have thanked God out loud for helping me beat someone in the presence of the person I was playing the game against who was also a praying Christian. 
Come on. I know I'm not the only one on here who's going to click number one. Maybe I am. <laughs> I, I had a bruise on my shoulder one time. I was playing my older brother when I was a kid, and he always beat me. And so one time, I just at the end of the game, I actually beat him, and it was like rare. And I said, praise God! And he punched me and said, do you think God answers your prayer more than mine? Okay, let's get a little more serious on this. I have blamed God or been angry with him for circumstances, job loss, difficulty, disease that I felt were somehow destined by him. Yeah. We all struggle with this issue, don't we? If I were to make an analysis of American culture... I would say that I think there's a whole lot more predestination or determinism in our culture now than there has been because of this sense of almost hopelessness that we can have real change in some major issues in our life. But American culture and the dream of Americans has been largely shaped by the great, what the great philosopher Dr. Brown says in this clip. The Bible of American values for self-freedom of choice how many have seen those movies? Has everybody seen them? Okay, so we, got, we have pretty good familiarity with them. Our text today deals directly with this whole issue of predestination. And, and actually, so we have to get into, in order to understand it, we have to understand a little bit of grammar. And I, I didn't do really well in grammar, but I'm told that in order to understand a really long sentence, and again, the sentence in, in Ephesians in our English translation is many sentences. No English grammarian has even attempted to translate the original language as it was written in one sentence. So it actually encompasses verses 3 through 14. But in order to understand the sentence, we have to understand what? We have to understand the subject, right? Who is being talked about? And everything in this passage is about God. And we have to understand the predicate, the core meaning of what is being said about the subject. And the predicate is actually found in verse 10, but we're going to read 7 through 11 to get some context. So in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So what this text is saying Verse 9, we begin to see the predicate meaning come out. It says, there is a plan. God is working out everything according to his will, his intention, and his purpose. Verse 11, we see some more context of explaining the predicate. Everything in history, it says, is in the plan. It says, who works all things, not some, but all, according to his will, his intention. And verse 10, the core of the predicate, Jesus is the point of the plan to unite, to focus, to bring together all things in Christ. Now, this is not just an intellectual debate. This is a very relational thing. This is a very emotional thing, a heart thing for all of us. Uh, think of it this way. Imagine that you had a very close friend who died, an untimely death, killed by a drunk driver. Now, that may be all too real for some of you, but all of us imagine that for a second. What would you say? If I went around this room, some of us would say, well, I guess it was his time. 
And in that, we make this intellectual statement about this reality, this debate between free choice and determinism. But it's also an emotional statement for us. It's the way we resolve our grief. It's the way we make sense of life so that we can move on. If we went around to others of you in the room, some of you would say, well, if he had only made the decision not to drive late at night when all the drunks were out on the road. If only, if only he had left a few seconds before or a few seconds after, he wouldn't have been at the intersection at the same time, right? And in that, we make this intellectual statement about this free will and choice thing, right? But we also, again, are making a very emotional statement. It's a way we make sense of our feelings. It's a way we make sense of our grief and order our world. And these ideas actually drive the way we approach life. If it's choice, free choice, then our lives tend to be driven by fear of not making the right choice, or by anger, anger at ourselves, anger at others, or anger at God because we need to work harder, we need to control our choices better, we need to to make better choices, we need to do better in life. And So let's ask the question, let's step back from that a second and say, what is this whole debate, this whole God has a plan, this predestination or personal responsibility thing have to do with self-esteem? In both of these Worldviews and both of the, these ideas, we're making a statement about who God is and how you have arrive at viewing yourself and a sense of self-esteem. You see, if you believe in predestination, if you believe that God influences the winning of your team, if it's all determined, then you see yourself in the end, as this meaningless cog in this cold, hard machine that just keeps going. And when you get stuck in life, the machine just keeps going and it grinds on you and breaks you down until you either start to move with it or you're replaced. It's a cold way of viewing the world. And and when we have that idea, we view God as cold, we view Him as distant, we view Him as impersonal, don't expect Him to be warm and personal to us. If, on the other hand, you believe very, very strongly in free choice, then your self-esteem by default is going to be all about performance. It's going to be all about your choices that will determine your current value and your future value. And for God, you will tend to view God as a taskmaster, as one who makes the choices hard so that it seems impossible to ever fully please Him and get to know Him. Now, there's two basic ideas I really want to drive home today, and I'm just going to tell you explicitly, then we're going to try to elaborate on them. The first one is this. The question of, is it predestination or free will? In the way the Bible answers that question, the Bible just simply says yes. That's its answer. History, on the other hand, comes down all the time on one side or the other, But the Bible says, yes, it's both. So let's look at it, for instance, even in Paul. Paul, in our letter to Ephesians, which we're studying right here in this passage, says everything is in God's plan. And yet a few short verses later in chapter 4, he says this. He says, but you're responsible with your choices to put off your old self 
and to put on the new self, to put off the old image of, of yourself and to put on the way God views you, thinks about you, and created you to be. We see it in Paul's, Paul's thinking and writing elsewhere. Acts 27, actually Luke's writing this. Paul we see on the ship. It's in a terrible storm and the, and, and, and the storm is threatening to sink the boat. Everybody's certain they're going to die. And an angel comes to Paul and says, no, every one of you is going to be saved. Fast forward a couple lines in the story and all of a sudden you see the sailors trying to sneakily uh, lower the lifeboat and leave the boat. And Paul says, you have a choice. If you do that, you will not live. Which is it? Is it no one's going to die or do we have choice? We see this in Joseph's life over and over again in the Old Testament. We see him, this person who has all the choices before him, all the wonders of the world. He's got the favor, everything. It's all taken away from him. His choice is taken away from him. He's thrown into slavery. Within that context, he makes some good choices about work and about his character, and God allows him to succeed, and he becomes the head of this man's household. And and then all of a sudden, he's thrown in prison again, and we know the end of the story. He rises again, and he becomes the second in command in Egypt. And we see this amazing, famous line at the end of his life where he's talking to his brothers and he says, What you meant for evil, God meant for good to save many. The Bible's teaching on this is we are 100% responsible for our own choices and we are 100% secure in God's plan who can control and shape history. Don't you hate it when the percentages add up to 200%? Right? It's confusing, isn't it? Maybe, uh, maybe the second point will help. The Bible is so much more nuanced on the way it talks about this, partially because the Bible doesn't assume we're ever going to figure out this mystery. We're never going to figure out the mystery of God fully. You see, when we think of predestination and free will, we think of it primarily in terms of trying to figure out events and behaviors in our life. And that messes with our heads. We go into these tension-filled, divisive arguments, arguments that we cannot definitively solve ever. And it actually ends up messing with our confidence even in terms of our ability to say, I heard you, God, or I sensed your leading in my life. It messes with our confidence there because, for example, so you got this job that you think God had divine providence in getting you. How do you know it was really God's divine providence and not just the fact that you met somebody a few years earlier who helped you get the job? Or how do you know it's not just the fact that the HR person lost another person's resume and misplaced it and you got the job instead of them, right? How can you ever definitively solve those problems, that riddle? And you see, that is the focus of much of the debate around this issue. Who's the one to whom we give credit? Who is the one to blame? Did God give me this or did my choice or did other people's choice lead me to it? And this has been going on in a debate with the smartest people in the entire world for all of history. In fact, it's gone on in every one of our lives. And here's the deal. When we learn to receive mystery as beauty, not mystery as something we have to continue to explain, when we learn to look at theology and scriptural through a relational lens, not a lens of religion that still says we have to figure out right and wrong perfectly all the time and who gets credit and who gets blame. Because when we try to approach this question through religion, we go down the same rabbit hole. But when we approach Scripture through relationship and what this says to us and how it affects us emotionally, 
security, how we can approach life, this whole answer of Scripture becomes just this wowing, amazingly beautiful statement. This yes of Scripture frees us from the stress and the fear of needing to perform while ensuring our security and relationship with God and the end result with God's plan and yet also continuing to allow us to be valued as individuals with choice and dignity rather than cogs in a wheel or robots used for another person's purposes. Let's develop this further, and I want to do it first by addressing those of you who tend to doubt God's involvement in your life, whether you don't believe in God or whether you're just a little more scientific and tend to doubt it. If you don't believe in God or have a scientific view in particular, let me, let me do it this way. Uh, then consider one person who actually really agrees with you. His name is Bertram Russell, and he explains the modern scientific viewpoint this way. This is kind of heady. It's going to be on screen so you can follow it with me easier. It says, That man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of, get this, unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. What a happy conclusion. Unyielding despair. And yet what he's saying is, now at least that you know everything, including you and anything you do, if you believe in free choice or even if you believe in pure scientific determinism, is an accident with no meaning then realize this. What you do has no lasting significance. So let's be honest. Unyielding despair. You see, to not believe in God's good divine providence, His predestination, puts us exactly in this place. And unlike most who believe this in America, who believe that free choice is up to us, that I can make my own way. Everything is about my choices. If you're not successful, wealthy, or healthy, it's mainly your fault. And unlike most who believe that, but never face what Russell faces, at least Russell has the courage to face honestly where that leads us. Most of us just, well, most walk through life just ignoring the reality that there, if there's no plan, all we have left is this unyielding despair that personal significance in life is just simply a shadow. It's meaningless. Devotion, effort we make towards things, if that's all there is, is our choices or this machine of determinism, our choices, the effort we make means absolutely nothing. 
It doesn't matter if we live with a high level of self-esteem or not. That's a ruse. It's a lie. Unyielding despair is actually more honest. We have to give Russell, Bertram Russell that credit of at least being a person who's honest with what his beliefs end up being. It's just like Steve said last week. A hundred years from now, he'll only be known by his chiseled physique and a couple photos, right? Further, those of you who wish your future was completely up to your choices... Consider how naive and dangerous that is. Think of it. What if things were completely up to your choices? Where would you be in life right now? I look back on my choices in my teens and 20s, and I'm glad I didn't get them all. I mean, heck, if we had gotten all the choices we wanted, we'd probably be married to the people that we dumped and are glad we dumped, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Or we'd end up like Dennis Rodman in North Korea uh, with no moral compass except that we'd be in a labor camp because Kim Jong-un would not be impressed with my basketball skills. Right? So we'd be, we'd be arrested as a spy. Or we'd be like Biebs, the Biebster. Right? No moral compass. Our lives would be a mess because character is often best developed in us through the things In the face of no, where we have to face no, or we have to face not possible, or we have to face different than what we want or what we want to choose. See, without a divine providence fathering us, we'd all be spoiled children with no character. No complete complete freedom of choice is a scary concept. It's way, way too scary, way too many painful, stupid choices we would have made in our lives. In the end, for those of you who believe in God and follow Jesus and, and believe Scripture is authoritative, even, even for those of you who question that still, consider this. How does the view of the present and future challenges and the dreams that you have when you emotionally understand the biblical truth that you are, you are fully responsible for your choices and yet God has a plan that he's ordering all things in history to and it's a good plan for Christ. How do your future dreams and choices and the way you feel about them change when you hold both of those in balance? See, we are free and there's also a good plan that we can rest in that we can't escape. You can face the unknown of how do I make this marriage or relationship work when it's so broken or so painful and neither of us seem to be able to fix it, knowing that God has you in your marriage or your relationships or your friendships or your family in your hand. It's a huge comfort. We get to offload so much stress to Him walking through those dark times in life or the business choices that we make we're not sure of. Knowing God has a plan that shapes all things for good can strengthen our ability to weather difficult times. Think of the most difficult thing you're facing right now. What is it? Is it job pressure? Is it financial pressure? Is it marriage pressure? Is it health? Is it relational or family issues that you're going through? And then think about the truth that yes, you are responsible, but yes, God's got you. He's got the plan. Your choices, good and bad, don't have to make up your sense of security or your sense of power or your identity or your self-esteem at all. 
Even though you are completely responsible, you don't have to base your worth on your choices because God's plan can work through both your good and your bad choices to bring about His good things in your life. He treats you with dignity, made in His own image, able to make choices. And yet He works, also works in your life to get you where you want to be, where He wants you to be, regardless. Now, as a teen, I used to have a visualization thing that, I would, that God gave me, and, I've, and it's come back a lot over my life. It's just been this picture in my mind that I've found really helpful for me understanding how to receive the emotional, relational side of this question in my life. So, as a child, I was extremely physically driven. My average summer day in my teens was going and working on the farm eight to ten hours a day and then going and playing sports four to five hours or six hours until I dropped into the bed. And whenever I didn't work on the farm, I had to have multiple friends throughout the day because nobody wanted to play all day with me because I'd play tennis for six to eight hours and I'd play basketball for three or four hours and then I'd go play softball in the evening. And I was just a driven person. Everybody thought I should be on medicine, but nobody put me on medicine, right? I had this dream. I had this dream of dunking a basketball one-handed. I, I didn't figure I'd ever get to the point where I could do it too, so the dream was one-handed. And, and so I went through this time period between my sophomore and junior years where I, I ran, I skipped rope, I did wall sits like crazy, I did explosion exercises 30 to 40 minutes a day just, uh, just trying to get there. And I actually got to the point where I could jump high enough to dunk a ball, but predestination did not allow me to do it because I forgot to look at my genetics. My hands are too small to palm a ball, and I couldn't control it. But while I was spending all this time jumping, God gave me this picture that's been really meaningful to me. Imagine that acceptable, that the goal God wants for us is jumping 20 feet in the air, not to a 10-foot basket, but jumping 20 feet in the air, Right? That's the way sometimes our, our life feels in what we feel like God wants us to live like and like we want to live like, right? If it's completely up to me, I'm just going to get discouraged. I'm going to, I'm going to be Bertram Russell. I'm going to have unyielding despair. There's no way that's going to happen. If I believe God's plan is going to lead me there regardless of my effort, it steals my motivation. It takes away my joy and my love of the game. It takes away being truly human. But if I realize the answer from God is yes, my whole attitude changes. I no longer look at the 20-foot mark and say impossible. I'll never measure up. I no longer, but I, but I get to look at it and go, wow, God, how are we going to get there? How is that ever going to be possible? I can hardly wait. And I can enjoy working out. I can enjoy being engaged in the process and living life fully with no guilt because I'm not jumping high enough, no fear that the coach is going to yell at me or bench me or kick me off the team. The choice, the joy of choice to voluntarily and wholeheartedly engage life abundantly. The fun of the journey comes out knowing I'm secure. I'm not going to get benched. I'm not going to get rejected. I get to be a part of something, something bigger than me. Something that the, that the big, really cool dude is a part of. And I get to go with him. Now, we could debate some 
other scenarios around this topic. We could look at the life of Saul. We could look at the life of David. We could look at the life of Joseph further. And we could see some nuances about this whole thing and how God works and how we experience it. But I don't want to go there today. I really want to leave us with just one focus. And that focus is simply this. How does it change your emotion when God says, this is the kind of relationship I want to have with you? When you think of the biggest challenges and you go, I am completely free and engaged. I am so dignified before God that I have absolute free choice in this. And yet, because I love Him, because I trust Him, I can trust that He's going to have, even in my bad choices, the ability to get me to the right place. How does that change you? Let's stop debating the issue intellectually. Let's see the beauty of the mystery and allow God to come to us individually. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that You'd come right now. That You would come and touch each and every one of our hearts. Lord, the anxiety we feel over choices, Lord, melt it. I pray that Your Spirit would come right now and that we would experience You in a way that would just melt that anxiety, melt that fear that we no longer have to carry that. Lord, that we'd see how beautifully personal You are, that we're not, we're not a cog in a machine. Yeah, we don't have to strive to please You because You love us. Lord, would You come to us and make that very real right now as we continue to respond to You in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to continue to encourage you to ponder on the, on the, the, the ideas that we've talked about the last few weeks. Every spiritual blessing and the concept of this great mystery and receive it as a mystery, not as an intellectual argument. Receive it as a relationship, not an intellectual argument. And let yourself go into each day thinking of God this way. And what does that say about you? It says an awful lot. He loves you. He thinks about you. You are powerful. You have everything you need to face this day and come out the other end, regardless of the difficulty, with good things. Go with God. If you came here today and you have something you'd love to be prayed for, we'd absolutely love to pray for you. There'll be a few people in the back over here waiting or grab a friend. Otherwise, uh, enjoy the snow. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.